0: I'm Sheila Cast. We're On The Record. Good morning. It's been about a month since over-the-counter hearing aids hit the shelves. A major policy change by the Food and Drug Administration last summer cleared the way for the devices to be sold in retail stores without buyers needing to see a doctor first. An estimated 40 million Americans live with hearing loss. This morning, we're discussing insights into common health concerns, hearing loss, and depression. Later in the show, we'll hear how the psychedelic component of magic mushrooms may lift clinical depression faster than conventional medication. But first, who are these over-the-counter hearing aids right for? Dr. Franklin professor of otolaryngology, directs the Cochlear Center for Hearing and Public Health at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and Bloomberg School of Public Health. Welcome back to the show, Dr. Lynn.
1: Thanks for having me, Sheila.
0: So this move dates back to the passage of the bipartisan Over-the-Counter Hearing Aid Act in 2017. Why did it take so long for these devices to hit the shelves?
1: Yeah, it took five years. I mean, literally to the day uh, when the law got passed, August seventeenth, two thousand seventeen, to when the essentially the final regulations were released, uh, roughly exactly five years later, August actually eighteenth, two thousand twenty-two. So um, you know, in, in all in all respect, in, in all fairness, it, 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 the law actually gave the FDA three years to issue these new regulations, and the reason I took it, reason why the law gave it three years is it's not easy. The the US is the first country in the entire world sounds crazy to say that, to have a regulated market for over-the-counter hearing aids, and the regulations that ensure that uh, hearing aids sold over-the-counter will be safe and effective, much like you buy any other over-the-counter Probably like a drug that you can, that's, that's assured safety and efficacy. Now, it took a little longer than three years, though. Um, the FDA really attributes that to, uh, in part the COVID pandemic. It slowed a lot of things down. There's a lot of competing priorities, FDA. But at the same time, I'll tell you, there was also a lot of resistance among the traditional hearing industry, uh, and groups that I would say stand to benefit from the status quo. There was a lot of pushback. Uh, fortunately, in the end, it, 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 it all worked out, Consley, and it all worked out as the, the bipartisan congressional tent. Uh, called for. Um, and in the end, we have a package of regulations that are really going to open the market to allow for a lot more accessibility, a lot more affordability for a lot of Americans who would benefit, as opposed to the few who just benefit from the status quo.
0: And who is best suited for these over-the-counter devices? Who who are they really for?
1: Yeah, so um, by the FDA stipulations, it, these are meant for adults, and that's completely appropriate because for kids who have hearing loss, it's something it really needs to be medically managed it needs to be medically evaluated these are really meant for adults in particular it's the the term is it's perceived mild to moderate hearing loss now what does that mean the key thing is that the way the regulations came out is that the fda wanted to ensure these devices could be beneficial to as many people as possible while ensuring that there's a safety profile i mean that's the output will be too loud that it could it could hurt someone's ears. So, effectively, what that means is that when we talk about perceived mod- moderate hearing loss as as, as as seen by the FDA, that really essentially means greater than 90% of the people out there with hearing loss would be served by over-the-counter hearing. So, in other words, if you're an adult and you think you're having some trouble, you know, difficulty hearing a little bit, words don't sound clear, you know, things don't sharp as sharp poor. There is every reason to think that over-the-counter hearing aids could serve your hearing needs. The people who it won't serve is that if you have a much more, let's say, a really severe or profound hearing loss, and that is not subtle. I mean, you will usually know via that. I mean, that's a that's a level where you can't even understand conversations in a quiet room, things like that. I mean, that is at one end extreme. Chances are, an o- OTC hearing at that point wouldn't likely help you as much as opposed to a prescription or a professionally fitted hearing aid
0: back up for me how common is the use of hearing aids in the u.s
1: oh this is this is the pressing sheila and this is what you know what i've been focusing on for years now is that the rate of uh hearing aid use among people potentially benefit is about 15 to 20 percent and i'll tell you that percentage It hasn't changed in decades, and there are a lot of reasons for that. So one clearly I think will be addressed by the Overcount Hearing Act is just the fundamental issues of cost and accessibility. Only way in the past to to get a simple pair of hearing aids, you had to make multiple trips to see an audiologist or ENT like me. It costs several thousand dollars out of pocket costs, which you can see why people don't get it. But it goes beyond that, too, just in terms of innovation, the technology styles, why don't they want to integrate with your lifestyle? There's a lot of stigma attached to it. So I think their low rate of uptake is in part driven a lot by the regulatory constraints in the marketplace, and some which are addressed by OTC. Um, but there are a lot of other barriers still in place that we're still working on. So she has a center at at the School of Public Health.
0: We'll talk about how hearing loss affects a person's quality of life.
1: You know, it used to be seen uh, prior to a decade ago, I would say, is that you know, hearing loss is just something that would literally everybody loses hearing as we age. I mean, beginning, essentially when you're a teenager, no joke, everybody's hearing Uh, gradually diminishes over time, doesn't matter who you are, no matter what you do, your hearing will decrease over time. And the reason for that is because the cells that in the inner ear that send sound to the brain, they're all these cells are all called post mitotic, basically mean they can't regenerate. So over a lifetime of aging, noise exposure, what have you, everybody's hearing declines at some point and at some degree over time, no matter who you are. Now that being said, then I think because that was seen as this inevitable process of aging, it was seen very much that, oh, it's got to be relatively inconsequential, it doesn't really matter. But the last decade of research has really turned that notion on its head. And what I mean by that is uh, research coming out of Johns Hopkins, as well as now being replicated around the world, increasingly linking hearing loss, for example, in adults with being the single largest greatest risk factor for dementia, for instance. And that's because of how hearing loss may put a load on the brain. You may not go out as much, you may not be socially engaged anymore, all which can have deleterious effects on our, our cognitive function over time. And that's just cognition. I mean, other domains now we're seeing where hearing loss affects people's health is actually in things like falls, the risk of depression, socialization, loneliness, all these things which these really consequential outcomes that all of us care about care about for ourselves as well as for our loved ones.
0: This is On the Record. I'm Sheila Cass speaking with Dr. Frank Lynn, director of the Johns Hopkins Cochlear Center for Hearing and Public Health, about over-the-counter hearing aids now available for consumers to purchase without consulting a health care provider. Are these over-the-counter hearing aids different from what you would get from an audiologist?
1: No. In many ways, amazingly, show. they can be literally the exact same device, I mean, down to the circuitry, the exact same thing. The key thing about an OTC hearing aid is that there are going to be provisions in there to allow it to be essentially self-fitting. That as a user, uh, most commonly you will pair with your smartphone your smartphone can do some type of hearing test. And then from there your smartphone will automatically calibrate or program the hearing aids for your needs. so that'll be the most common situation so but the actual circuitry the sound output could be literally the exact same thing as what an audiologist would do now the key thing about otc hearing aids though it's not for everyone and what i mean by that though is that it requires some degree of price some degree of tech savviness to you know putting your ear to properly adjust and calibrate. That's not for everybody, right? So that's this, that's to say the technology is is as good as you can get essentially with a prescription hearing aid. But what you're missing out on with OTC model, which is not insignificant depending on who the person is, is you're missing out all the professional services and counseling and guidance that an audiologists give you. And those are invaluable. Now, not everyone needs that. Someone may just need a little cursory introduction visit. Other people need, may, may need routine help as, issues come up with the hearing aids and the programming. So it depends on what you need. And a lot of people view this as it's either or, it's like, oh, either you go see an audiologist or you get OTC hearing aid and it's like too extreme, but nothing could be farther from the truth. If anything, what's happening is this convergence where many people you'll go see an audiologist if you need some guidance initially you'll get the professional advice and the audiologist may help you use an otc hearing aid right this will be magical with an otc or prescription hearing aid the question is whether or not you need additional services to go along with if you're unsure where to begin
0: right now there are devices available for as low as 200 dollars from cbs and walmart how do you expect this move to affect the overall cost
1: I think it's going to be the wild, wild west for another year or two, and I mean that in a good way and a bad way. And what I mean by that is you're seeing uh, the first OTC devices are hitting the market now, literally range prices you said right? from $200 up to like a thousand dollars at this point, they're all over the place. And I think the reason you're seeing that is the companies are entering the market now, companies like Sony and uh, and Bose and uh, eventually Braun. I mean, these companies are just trying to figure out how do you market the consumers? How do you even price these devices? Do you sell them in a CVS? Do you sell them in a Best Buy? So everyone's testing out the waters to see what is the way to meet consumers' needs? What is a consumer willing to pay? So I think there's gonna be a lot of things tried over the next year or two, I think before the market really stabilizes in terms of the availability of devices, the cost of the devices. So whereas, whereas for the next year, it's literally gonna be a little bit chaotic and i think it's unavoidable because listen in, in the history of uh you know history of humankind there's never been an otc market for hearing aids so this market is just developing so companies retailers even don't even know where to put these devices how you advertise it so i think there to be a lot of evolving price models as well as service models over the next one or two years i'll tell you from the price point of view uh if you look at the component costs of a good hearing aid with an overcounter prescription, there's no reason why a good hearing aid whether an prescription can't be essentially at the same cost as a good pair of, um, you know, uh, wireless hearables like earbuds, right? I mean, there's it's the same component cost. And what I mean by that then is, you know, a good pair of wearable earbuds are, you know, around 200 bucks, right? Whether you buy an Apple or Samsung or whatever, right? So there's no reason why over time that we won't get to get to a price point down, down to that level over time.
0: Thanks so much for this conversation.
1: Thanks again for having me, Sheila.
0: Dr. Franklin directs the Johns Hopkins Cochlear Center for Hearing and Public Health. We have links to more information about over-the-counter hearing aids at the On the Record page at wypr.org. Short break here. When we're back, are magic mushrooms the future of depression treatment? I'm Sheila Cass. Stay with us. Welcome back to On the Record. I'm Sheila Cast. For people with depression that isn't responding to treatment, magic mushrooms may provide relief. A recent study sponsored by a UK mental health care company found that a single dose of the hallucinogen psilocybin could improve depression in just three weeks. The study involved 233 adults with depression. And last week, voters in Colorado passed a ballot initiative to decriminalize psilocybin and other psychedelics. The state will join Oregon in establishing licensed centers where people can take psychedelics under supervision. Dr. Sandeep Nayak is a psychiatrist and postdoctoral researcher at the Johns Hopkins Center for Psychedelic and Consciousness Research. Dr. Nayak, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you for being here. It's my pleasure.
0: What is psilocybin, and how does it work?
2: Psilocybin is a drug, it's a chemical that is found naturally in a very wide variety of mushrooms all around the world. And it has a history of indigenous use in the Americas for various purposes, but more recently, essentially since the 50s and 60s, it has been used in clinical trials to attempt to treat a variety of psychiatric disorders people use it for all kinds of reasons too including recreational and spiritual but it's a it's a psychedelic drug and in that way it shares similarities to drugs like LSD or mescaline and it acts on the on the brain in the brain on a very specific receptor of serotonin to produce a very wide range of profound changes in perception cognition and mood which are temporary Uh, But which can lead to a um, quite a wide variety of enduring impacts, which is why we're studying it for therapeutic use.
0: Perception, cognition and mood. It makes changes in those.
2: Yeah. So there are a variety of impressive temporary effects. So, for example, people can have very extreme broadening of their emotional range. They can feel rapturous joy, but also panic and terror. They can feel variety of perceptual changes, the walls are breathing, to frank hallucinations, to feeling like they're transported into other realms or dimensions. Then also what we might call frankly mystical experiences where people's sense of self uh, dissolves, they may experience feelings of timelessness, uh, paradoxicality, profound, profound senses of meaningfulness. Now, one thing I wanna say though, is that it's incredibly variable and highly dependent on both the mindset of the person before the experience, and also just the environment they're in. And so the way that these drugs are delivered in clinical trials is with a lot of psychological support. And so any of the results that you hear in the news about psilocybin works for this or that, uh, I just really encourage everyone to remember that they're being delivered this, this, uh, this treatment in a very, very structured, supported context that may not pertain to whatever people are doing kind of on their own.
0: Well, tell me, in in the trials you've worked on, how is psilocybin administered?
2: First off, you know, people go through screening, we make sure that they're appropriate for the trial, and they're entered into the trial. So some people are not appropriate for this treatment, including family history or personal history of psychotic disorders or bipolar disorders. And before there's any drug, we spend hours getting to know them, building a sense of trust, understanding their life story, but also preparing them for what might happen in a psilocybin experience and how to handle it. And that involves things like an openness to experience, being curious, and also just depressing upon them that whatever happens, strange, weird, scary, they are going to be safe and we will ensure that. And then there's the dosing day where the two therapists that are with them from the get-go are present the entire time. The this is not like a guided psychotherapy session. It's very internal. People are lying down on a couch, they're wearing eye shades, they're listening to music for 6 to 7 hours and, and just encouraged to really just be internal, try not to intellectualize, experience whatever is coming up. And again, there's just profound variety in what what ends up happening. And afterward is kind of the most important part where we spend multiple sessions over the course of weeks uh in what we call integration but which essentially looks like psychotherapy where we try to make sense of the experience in a way that not only can help re-narrativize their life or their problem or just provide some new story that can be helpful but also try to lead to some sort of behavioral change so that's really the goal after the fact is to turn it into something useful
0: so it, it's more than the all these discussions you have after the dosing is more than just trying to address their depression, but actually make changes in their
2: life. Well, I mean, sometimes making changes in one's life is addressing the depression. The strange thing about this treatment, though, is that it is usually the case for depression when it works, it does work quickly. Which is not the case with other treatments, such as SSRIs, which do work, um, but they they take longer to work. So, right there is the issue of then maintaining uh, whatever benefit there is. Which I, th- I think, in general, people participants in these trials find that it is it is actually quite a lot of work, both during the dosing session, but also after. It's not a magic bullet. It's not a happy pill. It doesn't magically wipe away a problem. It, it does. Um, I, I tend to think of it as a form of drug-assisted psychotherapy, though there are of course drug effects that may be having therapeutic effects on their own, but much of what ends up happening looks like psychotherapy.
0: That's Dr. Sandeep Nayak of the Johns Hopkins Center for Psychedelic and Consciousness Research. On the record on WIP am Sheila Kast. We're talking about psilocybin, a psychedelic compound and its potential for treating mood disorders. Um, It's very common for medication to fail to alleviate someone's depression. Some estimates say up to one-third or more don't experience relief after trying two different medications. Why can depression be so difficult to treat?
2: Part of the issue is that there are many, many, many things that we call depression. So on one extreme, you have something that... Even the ancient Greeks recognized as pathological, a disease state, uh, severe melancholia, where people are perhaps confined to their bed, they're not moving, they're not eating, uh, they're losing weight, they're sleepless, they are consumed and racked by guilt. And then on the other, you have something that looks kind of like normal day-to-day blues. Uh, people are dealing with life upsets, et cetera, and you have everything in between. Um, and so depression ends up being lumping together of many, many, many different things, some of which may be responsive to drugs, some of which may not, but even even the kind that we might think of as being responsive to medications. medications do not work as well as we would hope. And so there are many, many patients out there who have depression, who have tried a variety of things and uh, have not found, adequate treatment.
0: You said psilocybin works faster than many SSRIs. Overall, how do its results compare?
2: Well, so there was one trial that actually directly compared psilocybin to an SSRI, Lexapro uh, is its generic uh, trade name, very commonly prescribed. And so yeah, I, I should say when it works, it does tend to work a lot faster. It does not always work. But in that trial, the the benefit was actually not huge, Um, although 60% of people who got psilocybin were in remission at six weeks compared to about 30%. uh, So there was actually double the remission rate, even though the depression scales did not show a huge difference. We don't have any other head-to-head trial, though, comparing psilocybin to an SSRI. So... The data that we have seems to suggest it's certainly not worse. Uh, It's also not a treatment that does not need to be taken every day, but uh, we just don't actually have good enough data doing head-to-head trials yet in terms of a more informative picture.
0: What are the risks of using psilocybin?
2: So there are, as I said, some people who have certain risk factors that are they're probably best avoiding psilocybin and those are individuals with personal or family histories of psychotic or bipolar disorder as those can be exacerbated by psilocybin or unmasked, brought out. However, uh, with somebody that does not have those risk factors, you know, I should say that in terms of physical toxicity, psilocybin is a remarkably safe drug. Very, very, very unlikely to overdose on psilocybin there's very, very little uh, risk for addiction or dependence in, in the way that we think of with opioids or cocaine. So primarily, the risks are psychological. So these experiences have a way of being uniquely psychologically beneficial, but the flip side of that is that they may be, have the capacity to be uniquely traumatizing. Um, and so people, even in the context of these trials where they're very, very closely monitored and have a lot of psychological support, people have experiences where they think that they're going crazy. They think that the drugs are never going to wear off. Maybe they forget they took a drug. Uh, they think that they're dying experiences, which, you know, it's not hard to imagine why that could be deeply, deeply distressing in the context of the trials though, we sort of provide people with guidance and instructions on how to handle that. Um, And so people, not infrequently, who may have an experience of, for example, I am dying, we would actually encourage them to, you know, with the caveat that they are actually safe, to explore that feeling and perhaps even let themselves have the experience of dying in this monitored setting. And they don't actually die. And many of them, for example, will feel a sense of rebirth or etc. In an unmonitored, unstructured setting, uh, where that experience doesn't resolve and there's no support afterwards, that that could just be a very traumatizing experience. So there are a variety of psychological risks that we try to mitigate by having quite a lot of psychological support around, around the actual drug administration that doesn't necessarily exist out there and the with people taking it on their own.
0: You know, pre and post visit supervision while a person is in an altered state, it seems like this treatment might be expensive if it's approved for a wider population.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I think the way that we are delivering it in these clinical trials currently is not that feasible. Um, the main expense being the labor of skilled psychotherapists, and so there are already trials that are doing things like, um, well, one, we already we have two two therapists with the participant, so it's possible that it, you could get similar benefits with one it's possible that you could do group dosing in other words having multiple people being dosed at the same time but there there just needs to be more research on that
0: is there too much hype i mean should should we be more conservative in thinking about the potential of psilocybin to treat mood disorders
2: i i think there is too much hype now there's a reason for the hype there's good reason to be excited and optimistic about these studies but This is not going to be a treatment that is going to help everybody. No treatment helps everybody. And that's one of the things that I've learned the most from participating in a variety of these trials is that the cases where it does not work. Some of those people end up being helped by more conventional treatments, actually. I do think these are promising drugs that have a lot of potential to treat perhaps a variety of psychiatric disorders, but we should be more uh, circum. Described about what we're saying, we, and we should follow the data as it comes out, I think.
0: Dr. Nayak, thanks for telling us about this. Thanks so much.
2: Yep. Thanks for having me.
0: Dr. Sandeep Nayak is a psychiatrist and postdoctoral researcher at the Johns Hopkins Center for Psychedelic and Consciousness Research. At the On The Record page at wypr.org, we have links to research on psilocybin and depression. I'm Sheila Kast. Glad you're with us on The Record. Come back tomorrow.